It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Hardly a day goes by in the U.S. without another mass shooting. We all know this too well. And it's only part of the problem. Gun violence that doesn't make the news, including suicide, is far more common than mass shootings. Will we ever see successful action on this issue? The vast majority of Americans live in a place where somewhere around 40 to 60 percent of homes have a firearm in them. And we have to start by understanding what our fellow Americans are living with and then creating solutions that help to protect them and protect their children. A public health approach to gun violence frames the conversation on care rather than regulation. Healthcare providers' primary goal is not to control or punish patients, but to help them and reduce harm wherever possible. Could we save lives by applying those principles to the epidemic of gun violence? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. Nobody is closer to the impacts of gun injuries than the doctors and nurses who treat them. A panel of healthcare providers who are leading on these efforts come together on stage for a passionate talk about opening our minds to new approaches for managing firearms. They tell us what's worked in their own lives and practices and share underused strategies that could be scaled up across the country. CNN medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen moderates the conversation and challenges the panelists with insightful questions. Here's Cohen. We're going to be talking today about firearm violence, and I have with me Jerome Adams. Uh, Dr. Jerome Adams is an anesthesiologist and executive director um, of health equity uh, initiatives at Purdue University. He formerly served, as you all know, as the U.S. Surgeon General and Commissioner of the Indiana State Department of Health. And he's frequently on CNN, so that makes <laughs> us happy. <laughs> Dr. Megan Ranney is an emergency room physician and academic dean at Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Ranney is co-founder and senior strategic advisor for AFFIRM, which stands for the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine here at the Aspen Institute. Dr. Barsati, Dr. Christopher Barsati, is the other co-founder <laughs> of AFFIRM. He is an emergency room physician in Vermont and co-founder and former CEO of AFFIRM, which is now at the Aspen Institute. He is also a certified 4-H youth firearms trainer, and I had the good fortune of being in Vermont about a year ago and watching him do his work with those children, and it was really, it was really an amazing program that you run there. It was really terrific to see. Uh, I'm uh, glad to be a part of it. Yeah, it was great to be there. So we're going to be talking about firearm-related deaths and injury in the U.S., more than 45,000 a year, unfortunately, more than, far more than any other developed country. It is now the leading cause of death among young people. It's overtaken car accidents. Of those deaths, suicide is the leading cause, followed by homicide, and then mass shootings is a much smaller percentage. Uh, with Uvalde and Buffalo and those tragedies fresh in our minds, and we try to work to prevent all of those deaths from happening, we need to consider also that about 40% of American households own guns, most of them legally. And there have been various approaches to address this problem, some changes in laws, regulations and policy, and other changes that don't involve policies. And so these three speakers are speaking at a very 
uh, a, a timely moment as the Senate is considering uh, the first bipartisan firearms legislation in a generation. We're going to be taking questions from the audience. We'll talk a little, you'll talk a little, we'll talk a little. Uh, one request that I'll make uh, more than once, which is this is obviously a topic that people feel very strongly about, as we all should, and that when you ask a question, you ask a question and don't make a speech because we want, these are our experts, and we want to move this along. So please, you know, ask a question. And I want to start with a question for the three of you which is, if you were king or queen of the world for the day, something I know you think about all the time, right? <laughs> but if you were king or queen and you could wave your magic wand and have one thing, one policy change, one intervention, one public health program, any of that, one thing to help curb violence, gun violence, because we know that it's gonna take more than one thing. But if you were granted the wish of doing one thing, what would it be, and please, be specific, not descriptive. In other words, it's suggest exactly what it is that you would want to do. So, do you want to start? <laughs> awesome, thank you. You have to let the queen start. There you go, he's learned well over the years. Um, so I think that if I could do one thing to change the patterns of firearm injury and death in this country, it would be to develop an accurate system for identifying who is at highest risk of gun misuse and then developing a program to separate that person from those lethal means at the time of danger. It's what we do in the emergency department every day. It's the basis of the public health approach is identifying risk factors and then acting on them. And it is something that we simply don't know. We have a lot of platitudes out there about what puts, puts people at risk, but there's so, so much that we currently don't know. How would that work? I mean, the population coming into an emergency room is a very you know, contained and particular population. How do, you, how do you screen everybody in the country? So great question. So I would actually think, that, well, the emergency department actually sees hundreds of millions of people per year. And so about a third of Americans actually come through our doors each year. So it is actually a great place to do almost universal screening. But if you combine that with primary care offices, schools, pastors, community groups, if we are all aware of what those risk factors are and then empowered to act on them, uh, it can be tremendously powerful. Now, it's easy for me to say that we'll start with the healthcare system because it's what I know best. Um, but we also, as we'll talk about over the course of the next hour, do a lot of work with community groups. And so there's a lot of space for empowerment there too. I think that's the key. There are a lot of touch points that we have out there. Uh, Again, What's your one thing? Well, <laughs> so, um, you can't just piggyback off hers. Oh, like so, well, well, so I'm, I'm going to give you a very specific thing, and I'm going to be really quick because there, there's a very specific, and then there is a, a very short descriptive thing that I, I, I want to share with folks. My very specific thing that I would have us do is um, really teach medical professionals how to talk about safe storage of firearms. 50% of medical professionals don't get any education in safe storage, and 70% of medical professionals say they don't feel comfortable having the conversation. But that said, we know it is an effective intervention, and do we have any um, people out there who train medical students, who train nursing students, who train... Uh, I was gonna say, at this meeting, we're gonna have tons. We literally could do that overnight. We could do that overnight. Change the training, and you could change the dynamic, and you could actually save lives. That's my very specific thing. My more descriptive thing, and I'll be brief here, um, but it's very personal to me. I, I'm a gun owner, full disclosure. I keep my guns locked up in a safe. I keep my, uh, my, my um, ammo 
away from my gun, so they're in two different safes. Um, and uh, we use our guns for, uh, to, to go out and shoot at the range. My son, today is his 18th birthday. And um, birthday. he's actually with his grandpa right now. And his grandpa lives in rural Indiana, and they went out shooting today. And the, the, very, the very brief descriptive thing I would do is to, to help everyone see the world through each other's eyes. One of my favorite quotes is by Mark Twain. He says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness because you get to see the world through someone else's eyes. I've lived in Richmond, California. I've lived in Baltimore, Maryland, two of the most violent places in this country. And, I will, and I've lived in apartment buildings in both of those two cities. My next door neighbor having a gun was a direct threat and a real and present danger to me um, in those environments. I now live in Indiana, and my son, on his birthday, likes to go out shooting in the middle of a cornfield at Target's with Grandpa. So for with them, it's family time. In a different environment, it is a very real and present threat to your life. And that's the challenge with coming up with national policy. Um, how do you come up with national policy uh, that, that satisfies people in Baltimore, Maryland, but also satisfies people in rural Indiana? It's a challenge, and that's why it has to happen at a local level. But it has to happen with us having a little bit of um, compassion and empathy for people who live in different environments and have different priorities than we do. Okay, thank you. Chris, your right, wand. So my magic wand, <clears throat> it would be kind of help to, I think, potentiate the, your wands. And that is, what I'm, I'm discovering here is that the public health approach that we're trying to operationalize is missing somebody, or a large group of people, which are firearm owners. And my one <clears throat> step would be to convene healthcare professionals who are expert in paramedics, nursing, emergency medicine, psychiatry, pediatrics, who are also experts in firearms or firearm trainers and convene us with other firearm trainers and retailers to understand how we can integrate the responsible heritage and traditions of firearm ownership that we give in training with the risk reduction expertise of the health professions so that we all understand that we are in this together. And I think when we do that, we'll find a lot of consensus. And then from that, we can enrich our processes for how to educate, how to talk to each other, and we can become ourselves trusted messengers in this community, whereas right now we're not. You are all three physicians. Is there something that you've done in your professional life or your personal life that was an intervention of some kind that you think may have prevented a gun death? Can you think of anything in particular? Megan, we'll start with you again. Uh, how many particulars do you want? <laughs> if, I mean, if there is a bunch so, of them in one yeah, category. Or... So, there, so I think, you know, hopefully all three of us have stories of ways that we have intervened to make a difference. Um, there's one story that actually stands out in particular in my mind. One of the things that actually got me started with doing work, I've been working in violence prevention for a long time, but one of the things that got me started in talking about firearm injury as a public health problem was a firearm suicide that I took care of in my very early days as an attending. And that case sat with me. It made me question why we didn't talk about firearms as a source of health problems, as a source of injury and death, and why we didn't go upstream to talk about how to stop it. In doing that work, I connected with Jerome, with Chris, um, with a friend, Emmy Betts, who's at University of Colorado, Denver, and realized that when you actually counsel folks who are in the moment of a crisis around how to store their firearms safely, how to separate them from a firearm for the period of time that they're in crisis, you can actually save lives. And there have been studies showing that that counseling 
decreases the number of fatal suicide attempts by up to two thirds. So soon after starting doing this work, I took care of a police officer who came into my emergency department because he was having suicidal thoughts. He was very hesitant to come in because his job was potentially at risk. His wife actually forced him to come in and he didn't quite meet criteria for being admitted to the hospital, which is so often true, more so now than ever before, right? Because we are in such a dire shortage of, of mental health um, providers. Now, I wanna be clear that mental illness does not cause gun violence, right? Very, and I, we can talk more about that after. But for this man who is in the midst of a personal crisis, the fact that he had his service weapon at home and could access it at any time was something that put him at much greater than average risk of dying. And he didn't want to give it up to, right, to, you, you can lock it up at, at the um, police department for a bit. That would have labeled him. He didn't want this to get back. So his wife actually locked it up and took the key. Um, and that was the agreement on which I discharged him from the emergency department. He then went on to get care. I see him sometimes, we're a small community in Rhode Island, and he's doing fine. Now, can I say he would have killed himself if I hadn't done that? No, but quite likely I, I saved a life. That's great. Can we dog ear the conversation about mental illness, mm -hmm. mental wellness? Because those are two different ends of the spectrum, and it is very true. We need to understand mental illness uh, is not the huge predictor of gun violence that people say it is, but a lack of mental wellness is pervasive in our society and does lead to people making bad decisions all the time. So I hope we put a dog ear into that, but, but the intervention that I would talk about is one that we have at my hospital. So I'm a trauma anesthesiologist. I work at the Cook County, the Grady Memorial of Indianapolis. Mm. Whenever we're on call, we're taking care of, what, of the knife and gun club. We're taking care of shootings, we're taking care of stabbings over and over again. And uh, we had about a 30% recidivism rate. So the biggest risk factor, and this is both shocking and also makes total sense, the biggest risk factor for being shot is having been shot. And so- 300 times greater risk of getting shot again if you've thank been you. shot once. And, and so these folks are there. And in many, many cases, they're in our ICU for, for weeks, um, you know, as we're helping them recover. It is a, it is a prime um, touch point for intervention. Um, and we let them sit there and we don't say anything to them about how they got there. So our hospital um, uh, developed a, a hospital-based violence intervention program. And this is now a CDC best practice. It was in um, their vital signs that they put out earlier this year that highlighted the 35% increase in homicide deaths over the last year. Hospital-based um, violence intervention programs where someone comes in, they've been shot, they've been stabbed, and you have an intense intervention with them while they're in the hospital. We lowered our recidivism rate from 30% to 4.5%. So we didn't save one life, we saved a lot of lives through that violence <clears throat> intervention program. And again, we need to help people understand that we can argue back and forth about gun control and please don't ever say that. <laughs> I, I beg you, please don't ever say that because America was founded by people who didn't wanna be controlled. You, you, you had people shut down when you use the word control. I say gun safety, but we can, argue, we can talk about that. But how about we talk about the evidence-based interventions that we aren't using right now, the, the low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. that we know, we know can lower from 30% to 4.5%, that we know can decrease by two-thirds the uh, chance of someone actually um, taking their own life. 
So can I tell two stories? Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> Darn it. <laughs> we didn't know that would have been. <clears throat> yeah, I know. If you don't ask, you don't receive. <laughs> All right, so and this, this, these stories speak to how the health approaches that we use to address firearm injury uh, are often nonpartisan and don't involve engaging law enforcement because health is, caring is not, uh, is, is not enforcement, caring is not punitive, caring is about care. And um, so many people have heard about red flag laws. And the intention behind red flag law is to identify somebody who's at risk, and then there's a, uh, a legal process by, to disarm them. And this is very stigmatizing and um, difficult to discuss in a lot of communities. Um, but the, the, the issue is to identify who's at risk and then take that risk of dying or killing away. So uh, a year ago in Vermont, where I live, there was a case of an older gentleman who had dementia, that got more delusional, more paranoid in his dementia, and his granddaughter came to his house, and this is a case in the news, it wasn't my case, um, to prepare his food and his medications, and he shot her with a shotgun uh, in the head and stomach, and she died. And this was an argument in the, in the media afterwards that we need to reinforce and expand the red flag laws in Vermont. There's actually an easier way to prevent this from happening that's not so easy to measure, and that is, anticipate the needs of our patients. So in the emergency department, I often see older people and younger people who are altered and identify that there's a risk. And when someone is altered enough or agitated that they become violent in their home and they start throwing pots and pans at, the, at their family members and they're brought to me because they're, they're unwell, well, then there's the, identity, the identification that, well, this could escalate if there was a firearm. And since I live in, a high, in, a, in an area where there's high rates of gun ownership, including me, I assume that the families have firearms. And so I ask, hey, so now that this person is decompensating, what are your plans for his firearms? And it's like, oh, that's a really good idea. And they make a plan <laughs> for the firearms and then nothing bad happens. 70% of doctors aren't comfortable having that Back conversation. Right, and so that's one example, right? I mean, I can't, I can't say that I have prevented this older person who is demented and agitated from shooting somebody, but we can compare from what's happening in the case. Uh, the second is the example of how we can create programming to scale out the health system so we can train each other as healthcare providers, not just physicians, but nurses and paramedics, to give these interventions. And we piloted a couple of years ago a program called Reframe, about reframing this as a health problem, and my health institution in Western Massachusetts, because in the ER, we know, we know when all the bad things happen, because you don't go in ER unless you have a problem, right? And Most so, of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we have you know, again, high rates of gun ownership, so higher rates of gun suicide. And a lot of the suicides are perpetrated against, people who, who die by suicide are first responders, law enforcement, paramedics, physicians, and nurses. And we had had a number of cases where people we knew in our community, because there's, there's only two degrees of separation between you and everybody else out where I live. We all knew each other. And we saw these, these cases happening. And so this was our moment to engage the community and our health system to address the problem that was happening in real time. We knew the national data. We also knew on a microscopic level our data. And so this was our moment to address it. And so we convened the community and my health system to talk about the case that we were receiving in our, in our health system. And so we talked about three cases that were done in a, confidential, in a, in a compliant way uh, in a safe way, we talked about this is a case that I had where a patient came to the emergency department. We recognized these risk factors. There wasn't much that we could do about separating them from the lethal means, or it wasn't even thought of, and then the patient died. And then with the audience, which was a community, community of not just 
physicians and nurses, but the community came, including members of the firearm industry, to talk about this. We talked about where were the opportunities upstream of that, of that penetrating wound where somebody could have identified a problem and done something. And everyone decided that the best chance of intervention was in the family, in the home, mm -hmm. when they recognized that there was a risk. And so then we gave some specific education about what we know about suicide, risk factors and warning signs. And then we gave two other narratives, one where there was a survival story, where somebody who survived a suicide attempt gave their perspective. And then we gave another story about, about a prevention narrative where a physician talked to a patient, gave the intervention, and there was no bad outcome. To demonstrate this is something that we can all do. The very next week in my emergency department, there was a woman who came in. She was the spouse of a of a first responder who had hanged herself. And he came home and um, cut her down and she was brought to the emergency department and, couldn't be, and could not survive. And one of our nurses who had attended the event with us had understanding now the context and who's at risk and why. And she was charge nurse that evening, so had no, no patient responsibilities. And so this first responder came in, she saw that he was despondent. She knew that he was at higher risk now because he had witnessed the death of a the suicide of a family member. He had firearms. And so what she did is she went to his colleague and said, hey, he's at risk right now. Talk to him about his firearms and make sure he's safe. And they did. And so that first responder is still in our community. And so this is a way that we can train each other to anticipate the needs of our community and understand how to pair risk with the opportunity so we can remove the risk of death. Thank you, those are all really great examples. I wanna ask a question of you, Megan, and okay. then you, you guys can chime in if you want to, but I think this is, you have all talked about gun violence as a public health problem, mm -hmm. and you've written, in particular, quite eloquently about this. Thank you. And, you know, we noticed, my colleagues and I, that when you go to the CDC website, you see, for example, COVID cases, the numbers <laughs> up to the very minute stratified by state, by region, by age, by race, it's all right there. You don't see that with um, cases, as it were, of gun violence. You yeah. don't see it in real time. You see studies about looking backwards. I mean, you see the, that kind of numbers for, say, monkeypox, which is a relatively small public health threat. Let it stay uh, that uh, way. Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what I'm wondering is, do you, do you think, you know, a very basic part of public health and uh, public is health data. addresses data, is yeah. keeping, tr just simply keeping track of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we do that and should we do that? That's a great question. So, so, that's, so to, for those, many of you I know are health or public health professionals, but there's really four steps in the public health approach, right? The first is having data. Mm -hmm. The next is what are the risk and protective factors. Then you develop things and see if they work. And then when they work, you put them in place. But step one is data, and we have virtually none. So there are two big reasons that we have so little data. The first is, for 24 years, the CDC was basically effectively blocked from doing work on firearm injury prevention. When I first started giving public talks around firearm injury as a public health problem, you could not find firearms on the CDC website. You could find everything from aortic aneurysm to Zika virus, but firearm injury was missing. And that's because of this thing called the Dickey Amendment, which was it passed in 1996 by a junior representative from Arkansas named Jay Dickey, who had been influenced by some political advocacy groups 
to believe that doing research was the same thing as advocacy. Let me be very clear, as the three of us talk about it, it's not, right? Mm. Collecting data and looking at data and actually finding truth around patterns is not the same thing as political advocacy. But Jay was convinced that it was, passed this amendment that forbid the CDC from do, spending money on gun, uh, promoting or advocating for gun control. And from that time up until 2020, the CDC had no money to spend on this issue. Jay Dickey ironically said he was wrong mm -hmm. towards the end of his life. There's actually a really nice piece in the New York Times today, a video interview between him and Mark Rosenberg um, talking about this. But that's the first and biggest reason, is there was no money, the CDC had no infrastructure. Then the second part is, because we're playing catch up, imagine we had no data on heart disease for 24 years. Imagine we had no data on oncology, on cancer for 24 years. We're now trying to play catch up and we're using data sources that are incomplete or inaccurate. And so a couple of years ago, a few of our colleagues actually identified that the injury data that was on the CDC website was horribly inaccurate. And so the CDC took it down and they're now trying to develop better systems for collecting real-time data, but it relies on the hospitals actually coding it correctly and then having a system to report it in. That all takes money. And as we've learned with COVID, one of the reasons why we have the COVID data is actually because we've declared it a public health emergency and almost forced the hand of, and Jerome can talk all about this from his experience um, in Indiana, but almost forced the hand of state and county health officials to provide us with real-time data. Nobody's doing that for firearm injury. And so what we do instead is we rely on things like the Gun Violence Archive, which is an amazing program um, that tracks all of the media reports. Some cities like Philadelphia have developed programs to track shootings in real time. Um, there are a number of physician groups that are trying to use data. But it is, I mean, Elizabeth, it's, it's mind boggling but to, to your point. Like, how do you start solving the problem if you can't yeah. even measure it? But why doesn't the CDC do something like what the Gun Violence Archive does, as imperfect as it is? I mean, going through media, yeah. God knows how irresponsible we are, right? I'm just... You guys are. But, <laughs> we, depends on which outlet. Right, right. <laughs> but, but, if, but, if, but if that's the only data, isn't that better? And, and put a little note there that says this is, you know, so it's, because yeah. it could take eons. It could. So it's a great to... question. So I'm actually a big believer in citizen science. You know, I started this organization called Get Us PPE during the pandemic mm -hmm. that Chris helped with as well. A firm actually helped support that served as the preeminent source of data on which healthcare facilities, both acute care facilities and non-acute care facilities, had PPE access. Mm -hmm. Nobody, there was some tracking on, I don't know if Alex Azar is here or not, there was some tracking on the part of HHS, but it took a while to, uh, and you can talk about this as well, but it took a while to ramp up um, and was inaccurate and didn't include all of the healthcare facilities. We made a huge contribution that was then kind of taken over by the federal government. So I would hope that the CDC would take it over, but there's a lot of laws and regulations that the CDC has to follow, a lot of extra steps around verifying data that are sometimes prohibitive from quick change. I think you put that very well. This isn't a problem that's unique to, to guns. Um, I had an op-ed in USA Today uh, several weeks ago where I talked about the fact that in March of 2020, the President of the United States asked me how many COVID cases we had. I don't know, Mr. President. How many <laughs> ventilators do we have? I don't know, Mr. President. Um, how many uh, hospital beds do we have? I don't know, Mr. President. And then he said something not so nice to me. Um, <laughs> but the truth is that as Megan laid out, we don't have reporting from hospitals. We don't have reporting from nursing homes. We, didn't ha we, had, we had less than 60% reporting even after begging. And finally, we had to use public health authorities and the threat of either taking away people's money or the bribe of giving people extra money to uh, get them to report. 
And the interesting thing is that that actual authority is about to go away. So mm -hmm. we talk about the COVID dashboards. That may go away if we don't change the laws soon, but that's cardiovascular disease. That's opioids. We should, know, we yeah. should have better real-time reporting of opioids. It is a basic problem with data collection and infrastructure at the CDC, and we need to fund that at a, at a basic level um, for every disease out there. There's no reason. We've proven we can do it with COVID. So we should be doing it. You're right, we should be doing it. But uh, the, the other point Megan brought up, which I want to foot stomp, is there are laws, there are regulations, there are rules. And as you've seen with COVID, the CDC has to be 101% correct before they put something out. Because if they're 1% wrong, then everybody goes, see, you can't trust the CDC. <laughs> and that is a real conundrum that they have uh, over and over and over again, that they have to be perfect and it was a frustration for me when I ran a State Department of Health. My epidemiologist would say, we've got to scrub the data. We've got to make sure it's perfect. There's that pressure. And they're starting to shift just to, to your point, put up provisional data. But then the public has to understand that it's provisional data. It may change. And that doesn't mean that someone was wrong or nefarious or incompetent. It means that it was provisional data. Yeah. But this, this is the point of also funding the research is because we develop the systems, we develop the methods that then inform everyone else. I'm gonna give an example. There's this amazing project called the Violence Project, which is run by a couple of folks out of Minnesota that has tracked every mass shooting over the last three or four decades and looked at the risk factors for being someone who commits a mass shooting and has used this. They have done this with largely private funding actually, largely philanthropy and have managed to identify what are the most common risk factors for being someone who is going to be a mass shooter. There's a suicidal impulse. There is a personal crisis, personal distress, which to your point, and I see John LaPook in the audience, and he did a great piece for CBS on this recently, which I want to highlight. Um, if, but there is a difference, right, between personal distress, between psychological distress and mental illness, yes. right? Which, uh, so they've identified that in this violence project and then we're then using it to say how do we inform those of us in the emergency department people in schools secret service or fbi to better identify who's at highest risk and intervene my hope is is that that work that's being done privately will then be incorporated eventually into our larger national guidelines right that's how this works that's how science works is you do these little experiments and if they're successful that's awesome and then you put it onto the national stage but for the data, we're so far away still, again, because we've had 24 years of not doing it. Let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, if you can raise your hands and um, don't start talking until, <laughs> until, you get a until you have a microphone. So sorry, I don't see very well, but I think I see a hand back there. Am I right there about and that? then one there. Okay, yeah, there's a, someone, someone has their hand up back there. I see a microphone headed their way. Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> my colleague and I are, are physicians practicing in this area in the uh, congressional district represented by Lauren Boebert. So uh, I would really love, I think all physicians kind of develop a spiel about different topics that they talk to patients about, and I would be really interested in hearing each of your spiels when you talk, and obviously we change things depending on who you're talking to, but your general spiel when you're talking to a patient about gun safety. What, may I ask, what kind of physicians are you? Do you mind? Because it differs, right? If you're a pediatrician or an anesthesiologist, you know. Right. Yeah. I'm an internist, and, and she's in a, a 
ER physician. You know what, give, yeah. give an example. If a patient comes in, give a little scenario and then they'll, they'll pretend to, 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 address, to address that patient. So I had a young uh, diabetic man come in uh, a few years ago carrying his gun on his hip, which we don't allow, and I had to talk to him about that. But I realized I, I sort of ineptly tried to take it a little further in terms of safety, but he knows so much more about guns than I do that I felt um, inadequate. Well, and, and that's to Chris's point. Um, one of the things that, that I personally do and say is that, hey, I'm a gun owner. I mean, because uh, a lot of the conversations start off with them thinking the second you talk about guns, you want to take away their gun. And it's immediately defensive. It's immediately they're putting up their armor. The last thing that, quite frankly, a lot of them expect me to say is, hey, I'm a gun owner. And here's what I do to keep my gun safe. And it, it opens up the ability to have that conversation. And not every physician is going to be a gun owner. You're not going to be able to. But the point is that we've got to be able to. There, there's a, a saying that I, lo uh, I, I love, and it's that people need to know that you care before they care what you know. Hmm. And uh, we have to find that connection point with gun owners um, that is not a, a we're going to take away your guns or you're a bad person for carrying it connection point and show them that we care, and then we can start to have that conversation. That's the way I approach it. It's right. going to be different. And, and to build on that, so the, I've, I've never actually had a difficult experience thus far talking to my patients about firearm safety because I tell them why I'm, I'm talking about their firearm. Um, because I identify I am concerned about a health outcome for yourself or your family, and therefore I want to ask you about your firearm and how it's stored and if there's an opportunity for, in that moment of crisis, to separate you and the firearm for a period of time. If a patient comes in and doesn't show a risk factor or doesn't demonstrate evidence of being at risk of harming themselves or others, I don't, I don't bring it up. So I am the non-gun owner of the three of us, right? So I will kind of say that, that, that I can't use that as my starting point. I also get that as an internist or as a pediatrician, there's a responsibility for anticipatory guidance. Yep. And so in those settings, I frame it in that larger set of questions, right? So tell me about, do you wear your seatbelt in your car? If you ride on motorcycles, do you wear a helmet? If you have little kids at home, do you have the poison kind of taken out from underneath the sink? Or do you have a sink, uh, one of those kind of locks in place? Oh, and if, do you have a firearm at home? If so, is it stored safely? And they may ask why you're asking. And so then you kind of, you can share information about, listen, I wanna make sure that if you have kids in the house that their friends can't get access to it, if you have an elderly parent that they can't get access. And then of course, God forbid, if someone in your household had an, kind of a personal crisis, I would wanna make sure that there was space and time between them and the firearm. But I take this harm reduction approach. I use that same technique that I use with motivational interviewing when I'm talking about any other potential health risk, ranging from the risks for heart disease to the risks for car crash injury, and allow the patient to make the choice that hopefully decreases their risk a little bit, unless, of course, they are in a very high-risk situation, in which case you get a little more prescriptive. And but. Megan talked about harm reduction. This is a real scenario. I've had conversations with people in gangs yeah. about their, 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 their gun ownership. And um, I'm not going to talk them out of carrying their gun because they're carrying it to protect their life. That's just a non-starter. But I can have a conversation with them, and I have uh, when I notice they have a kid, 
-hmm. And that's another place where I can create connection points with people. Any of you who'll meet me um, or who've met me before know the first thing that I do, and this is just natural, it's not contrived, but I ask about people's families, I ask about their kids. I love talking about my kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the first thing I, I mean, it, it, that wasn't even planned, I talked about my kid <laughs> to, to you all today. You create that connection point, and okay, well, you've got a kid at home. So I understand you feel like you need to carry your gun, but uh, what are you doing to keep your gun out of reach of your child? What are you doing to keep, it, keep them safe? And so, uh, again, not judging, not coming in and saying, we're here to take away your gun, or making it seem like that's the case, but uh, creating that connection point and then finding some common ground so that you can reduce harm, even if you can't completely take it to zero. And I'm happy to share resources afterwards. There's a whole group of things. We've written papers for Annals of Internal Medicine. There's a whole project out of UC Davis that has lovely counseling language um, as well. So happy to connect you afterwards. Let's see, I think we have a question right here. Hi, thanks so much for coming. Um, so my question is this. My brother is a, the head of a department in France. He's an anesthesiologist in the emergency room in trauma. And I was talking to him the other day because of what's happened recently. And his point that he doesn't understand, and neither do I, so this is my question, is in France, in his emergency room, which is filled like ours, there's hardly ever uh, somebody coming in from a gunshot wound. Right. And the reason is because no one has guns and no one needs guns to protect from people who have guns. Judging from that and places like New Zealand and other places in the world that have just said these are used to kill mostly other than shooting with your grandpa and things like that. Why can we just not eliminate that like other countries have? They've proven talking about data that their data is once they eliminate the guns, the death from guns stops. Why is that so impossible? <laughs> Well, can I take this yeah, as yeah, someone, yeah. no, I mean, so thank you. So as someone who is not a gun owner, this was my viewpoint coming into this debate, right? Is if we just got rid of all the guns, there would be no gun deaths, right? Which is true. And if we got rid of all the cars, there would be no car deaths also. We haven't gotten rid of cars. Instead, we have used the public health approach to decrease the number of car crash deaths by more than 70% despite the fact that there are more cars on the road and more millions of miles traveled than ever before. We have used this public health approach to change the engineering of cars, to change the engineering of roads, to change education around car seats and drunk driving. Yes, to put some policies in place as well, to help license people more effectively. Now, are there people that drive with suspended licenses? Are there people that drive drunk? Are there still car crash deaths? Yes, but we have managed to maintain folks' access to cars and still decrease deaths. In our country, firearms are not going away. There are more than 400 million firearms in private hands in the United States. And when we say things like, the answer is to get rid of guns, do you know what happens? Nothing. It actually stops the conversation, it stops us from making progress, and it stops us from creating that equivalent of that 70% decrease that we have seen happen for car crash deaths. If we had said then the answer, when they tried back when the very first car crash happened, Back in the early 1900s, if you read the history of science and medicine, they said, oh, we have to get rid of cars. We have to, imagine, imagine, I mean, you know, some folks, the Amish, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, there, there were a lot of Amish around, they don't have cars, but for most of us, we can't imagine that, right? And instead, there are things that we can put in place to make firearms safer, to make the people that use them safer, and to create systems to reduce access 
to those who are intent to harm themselves or others. So that would be my answer. Chris? Well, also, you know, the public health approach requires that we develop programs with the communities and for the communities. And what works for New Zealand and France and other countries is appropriate for their population. It's not appropriate for the United States population where we have the Second Amendment. And so firearms are here. We accept that. We want to be as safe as possible and learn how to live safely with and around firearms um, because they're part of our culture and we're not contesting that. And from a political standpoint, and I just want to add, I just want to add on to that really quickly, and I'll, I'll be really brief here, that the real challenge is that there's the world as we may want it to be, and then there's the world as it actually is. And as physicians, we have to operate in the world a, a, as it is. But from a political standpoint, uh, the, the one thing that I, I would, I would uh, um, say uh, against what Megan said is she said that nothing changes. Actually, when you threaten worse. firearm ownership, gun sales go up. Mm -hmm. Gun sales consistently That's go up point. whenever someone is running for office who says, I'm going to take away guns. Yeah. And so we actually make the problem worse. And so while I hear you, and while I appreciate exactly what you said, that yes, if we could take away all guns, it would solve the problem. You are correct, but we are, we're, we're trying to help people understand that there are real, tangible, um, uh, things that we can do right now to make people safer. The VA has done a tremendous job with safe gun storage that has really lowered suicides in the VA. There are real things we can do right now um, short of taking away everyone's guns, and we aren't doing those things because we're fighting over whether or not everyone should have guns or no one should have guns. So, oh, sorry. I, I want to speak to <laughs> what you're saying, which is we live in the real world. Yeah. And I also want to speak to the applause that that question yes, got, yes. which is this. Everything that you said about car, reducing car mm -hmm. accident deaths is true, but you left one, some, some things out, including there is now a law that car makers have to put seatbelts in cars, mm -hmm. which they fought tooth and nail at the time. Yes, they did. Back in the day. Ralph Nader made his name. Exactly. <laughs> there is a law that, that people in cars need to wear seatbelts, which was also fought yeah. tooth and nail. Mm. And, but, they, but they work, right? Now there are seatbelts in cars, totally and people wear them because it's a law. Right. Is there anything wrong with making laws? For example, a law that says, you know what? You can't buy an assault rifle until you're 21. Mm -hmm. What would be so terrible about that? So I love this question. I, I love this question. And I want to be clear. And when I talked about car crashes, I actually did mention policies. Mm -hmm. Drunk driving laws are one of the most effective things that we have mm -hmm. to reduce car crash injuries and deaths. And there are absolutely policies out there that are effective. And I will say that if this closure of the boyfriend loophole passes, I will be one of the happiest people in the universe because I have taken care of patient after patient who has been shot by their partner. I have a friend who was shot as she walked out of her shift in the emergency department by her ex-fiance and killed. Um, and many of us have those stories, right? And that is a place that policy absolutely makes a difference. But, and, policy alone is not sufficient. So actually, when you pass drunk driving laws, the law alone is not what does it. What does it is the enforcement and the education on the other side. My state has actually closed the boyfriend loophole, and nonetheless, I take care of women that have been shot by their boyfriends, who they have restraining orders against, or who have been convicted of domestic violence, because we have not done the work to educate our family court judges 
or to educate the law enforcement officers. I will call law enforcement when I take care of a victim of domestic violence and say, she says that her boyfriend has firearms, and they'll say, well, if we run into him. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so there's this element of policy and. So there are policies that are tremendously effective. They need to be used in a way that's matched by implementation and education. And so there, there is a thoughtfulness behind what we put in place that's really important. And, and it's actually another part of this kind of Senate bill going forwards of uh, providing money to states to put red flag laws in, part, in place. It's critical because you could have every red, you know, every state in the country could have a red flag law. And I can tell you, most states don't actually use them effectively. So there, there is this kind of, it's a both and rather than an either or. And I think the mistake we all make or many of us make is thinking that policy alone is going to solve this. Policy is absolutely part of it, but it is far from sufficient. And if we lean only on policy, we then lose the chance to do so many other things that create space for collaboration and forward movement together and that are tremendously effective. I love the one of you said the term low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. And for example, what you do at Purdue, like mm -hmm. it's just yeah. it's like, it's crazy that that's not done everywhere, right? Isn't it low-hanging fruit to tell gun shops already check what age you are? They don't. They don't sell to tell because they don't sell to ten-year-olds, right? I mean, right. they want you to be eighteen. Wouldn't it be pretty low-hanging fruit to say, you know what, when you're selling assault rifles or or whatever mm -hmm. the right nomenclature is? that person has to be 21. That sounds pretty simple. They're already checking sure IDs. They're not selling to six-year-olds. Well, and that's Wouldn't what they're be... actually talking about right now with the bill that's out there. And so- um, and it's to... not, I don't think it's looking so hopeful. It's, it's, it, it's not, but, but to your point, I'm a gun owner. I'm not an NRA member, so that's my full- Are you full, over 18? That's my full disclosure. Are you over 18? That's, that's my full disclosure. <laughs> I'm not an NRA member, but the NRA mm -hmm. member has done a masterful job of saying, we can't let them do that because see, they're gonna, that, that's, a that, that, that's a slippery slope to them taking away your guns. And we say, they, we don't wanna take away your guns. Oh yes, we do, did you hear all that applause? This is all on, on it's all recorded, it's all on, yeah. that's exactly what they wanna do. They wanna take away your guns. And the NRA has done a masterful job of creating this all or none, that if you even, as a elected official, give them one inch, if you let the camel's nose under the tent, that's gonna be the slippery slope to, to us taking away your guns. And, and that's, that's, that's why, again, we are so, it, I completely hear you, yeah. sir, and, and I hear you all, and I feel, we, we see these people in our, in, our, in our emergency rooms, in our operating rooms, every single day. We are just as sick about it as you all are, so please don't mistake what we're saying as, as us not being as passionate about it as you are, not hearing you, but we've seen also from a policy perspective that taking that position can actually hurt our ability to, to, to move the ball four yards down the field versus 100 yards down the field. Right. When you lead with policy, you disengage this, this population that, that desperately needs to, wants to be part of the solution. And so, and again, this is the, for, the policy is the fourth step of the public health approach, scaling up what works. And we don't know that these policies work. We don't know if changing the law from 18 and 21 for assault rifle, we'll actually have a change in outcomes. We don't. You know, we know that, I mean, the two recent shootings were 18-year-olds who legally owned guns. I, I understand that, but the, the thing is, we can't drive the public health approach with, with policy. Because when you do that, you make it impossible to engage communities who can help us bring the ball four, downs, four yards down the field as opposed to... Great analogy. Mm -hmm. So would you be against a law that that said no sales 18 to 21? What I think personally is not relevant to this conversation. Um, 
what matters to me is, is, is this person safe? Like, as far as I'm concerned, if you're a safe person without risk factors for, for harming yourself or others, then I'm not going to personally get involved in that. I would be in favor of it. I mean, I, I would, and, I, and, and I've told my Republican colleagues, I've talked to Bill Cassidy, I've talked to um, uh, um, Senator Young, and they're, they're two of the Republican senators who have crossed the aisle um, in, you know, to support the bipartisan legislation. But, but I say it from the standpoint of, hey, we know that the brain is not fully developed. We know that there are medical and scientific reasons for not giving someone the ability to own one of these weapons and then the data, the data that we do have, to your point, does show that, um, that several of these shootings, we have to collect the data. We, we can't just do it based on feel emotion. Or, or emotion or because someone did it over in another country. We've got to do it based on what we know here. Let's see. Ooh, that could oh, get a wow. whole lot of questions. I like it. <laughs> we're never so, gonna... While we're getting the questions out there, so I want to add one more thing, which is you look at prohibition, right, which was a great idea, and think about how poorly it worked. So, so this is a slightly different perspective as an engineer. I love it. Yep. Yay, so, engineering, a great so, public health solution, by the way. So cars are designed for locomotion purposes, but mm -hmm. guns are designed to kill. I mean, yeah. there is no other purpose for yeah. it. And engineers designed it for wars or for preventing that. They're not designed for civilian use. So that, and especially like big magazines weapon, they were never designed. So, so we have to understand that the, the big argument of why we are facing this as a nation is because there's an advocacy from NRA very actively there. And I, I really appreciate you dealing it as a, as a public health issue because it is a public health issue and that will help. But eventually we need to get to the point that what they're designed for, they're designed to kill. So do you actually think, and this is just a question I, I have for, for, for you all again, um, don't disagree with you. Do you actually think in our lifetime, we're going to get to a place where you're going to get enough people to uh, enough uh, people in the United States and enough of our legislators to agree. And, it, and, if the, and if the cost is if the cost of pursuing that is that we aren't doing no. all the other things that we mentioned in the meantime, then the, the, then is that a cost you're willing to accept to, to move in that direction? So and, and I, then I, I'm, oh, sorry, go ahead. Please. Answer his question. I, I don't want to take anything away from what all three of you are doing because yeah. that is really helpful. So there is no doubt about that part. So really appreciate that approach. But I think as, as a father of a 15-year-old, mm -hmm. I worry every single day. Yeah. And I at some too. point of 17, time, there are other 16. parents who should stop worrying because there is a group of people who, because of this is, relates to COVID in a way that I'm not yeah. doing something because it affects your health. At mm -hmm. some point of time, we have to come together as a nation and see what is of better purpose for everyone. And unless 100%. we get there, I think we'll have these issues. Yep. So and I know totally, it's not yeah. I, and, and as a parent of a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, and you have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old, right? So totally with you um, on the need to protect our kids and protect our communities. And I think that our perspective is what is actually going to get us there to protect them, right? And, and I think that that to me is the core question of where can we actually go that is going to protect our kids? It is not arming teachers, right? It's also not making our schools more secure. It's about doing a better job of getting the folks that are both at highest risk and the folks that can help change this on board with the need for a shift. 
I will also say from the engineering perspective, there are some amazing engineering innovations that were put in place, to your point, with the car industry kicking and screaming, <laughs> right? Um, crumple zones, uh, three-point seatbelts, making seatbelts mandatory. We have not done that for firearms. So yes, they are designed with a certain purpose in mind. There are also ways to make them safer, right? So everybody loved their gorgeous Cadillacs, right, with the steering wheels that would impale them, literally. Um, and we don't see that anymore. And we don't see that because of engineering. So there are also really smart engineering solutions out there, some of which we've only started to think about. So I think that kind of the thing that we're trying to say is how do we think outside of the box? We have been going down this one road, which is for as long as I have been an emergency physician. And all I'm seeing are gun deaths go up. Mm -hmm. right. So how about we try something that might be, actually help us make a difference? And, so, and two, two other points to that. So there are, there are probably about 100 million gun owners in the United States right now. And there are probably closer to 500 million guns in private ownership. Um, no one knows. <laughs> we don't know. But you know, according to some, some older surveys. So with that, many millions of guns and gun owners. We have 45,000 deaths and 125, 140,000 injuries per year, which is a terrible number. However, that would suggest that gun ownership, especially legal responsible gun ownership, is, is very safe. And moreover, how, what we pursue, what we, the, the, the approach that I take is I understand, and there's consensus in many groups about this, is that how a gun can be used depends on its manufacturing, how it's designed, how it's, and so forth. But how it will be used depends entirely on the health of the person holding it, their mental, physical, and social health. How does that number suggest that they're safe? So, I mean, how many cars in the country versus how many drivers versus how many car deaths? I'm not contesting, I'm not, I'm not arguing that. I'm saying based on the number, like what is that, point? So oh. I'm, gonna, I'm actually gonna move. I'm... So if you wanna say, so do you know who's most likely to die from a gun injury in this country? It's young black and brown men. Mm -hmm. So it's 20 to 30 times the risk for this. So you wanna know how to help save them? It's about putting in, getting rid of vacant buildings. So there have been studies showing that when you green vacant lots, you decrease the rate of gun violence in the neighborhoods around that. It's about funding public schools. It's about providing educational opportunities and mental health treatment. And it is about stemming the flow of illegal guns. Absolutely, it is about reducing access to the means for someone who has the intent to harm others. Right, and that is part of what is in the bipartisan bill. However, you, like, I, I don't, there is the reality of the fact that I live in Rhode Island, which is a very blue state with relatively low rates of firearm ownership. The vast majority of Americans do not live in, those, in Rhode Island or in Brooklyn or in Berkeley, right? The vast majority of Americans live in a place where somewhere around 40 to 60% of homes have a firearm in them. And we have to start by understanding what our fellow Americans are living with and then creating solutions that help to protect them and protect their children, right? Anyone that you talk to in this country does not want their kid at risk, anyone. And so let's work with the communities that are in Detroit or St. Louis or Gary, Indiana, which has one of the highest rates of firearm injury and death in our country. 
Let's work with them to actually make the investment to decrease, let's address the structural racism that puts those young men at, work, at, at risk. 100% all day long. Let, right? let, let's there prevent, by the time, by the time we're, we're, we're debating over whether or not the person should have a gun to commit a violent act, it's we we have yeah. so many opportunities, and there is great data. There are great programs in Chicago, and, down, and I visited on the south side of Chicago, a great program where they took young men who were, were either... Duncan's work? Yes. yes. Um, it took young men, and I visited with some of these young men who, would, uh, who were at risk for committing a violent act or being a victim of a violent act, and they gave them peer uh, mentorship and, 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 uh, and uh, helped them uh, understand careers that they could pursue, and they precipitously decreased the chance that they would be involved in a violent act, statistically speaking, more so than uh, trying to take away um, the 500 million guns that are in the United States that they would otherwise yeah. And there is an aspect of kind of also, I'm gonna say there is an aspect of kind of the firearm dealers, right? So there are these notorious bad apple dealers, there's straw sellers, there are some really good policies that could be put in place. The ATF absolutely needs to be empowered to do a better job yes. talking about it's data. It's yes and, it's not either or. Right. It's, it's, it's yes, yes and. and. Let's, we only have five more minutes. Sorry. There's a lady up front here, but go ahead. Uh, re re really quickly, uh, something that we're missing here is we keep talking about the, the, the firearm victims as the people who got shot. Mm, what about the you. people who, who actually end up in jail? Um, mm -hmm. And I talked about making the economic argument earlier. Do you know it costs $150 a day to incarcerate someone? times 365 days a year means it costs about $50,000 a year to incarcerate someone, which means someone gets a 20-year prison sentence for a firearm, uh, for, for, for a firearm felony. Uh, we're paying a million dollars to incarcerate them. Um, we need to help people understand the financial cost and the societal cost, the workforce cost. We've lost someone from the population. We're paying a million dollars to incarcerate them. We need to help them understand that yes, as tragic as those 45,000 deaths are, the toll is even much greater, particularly, again, in black and brown communities. Question okay. right up here in the second row. So I, I'm a primary care physician, and I do counsel about guns. Thank you. Um, thank, thank you for teaching me how. I work with Emmy Betts. She's fantastic. Um, and my experience counseling about firearms is very similar in a lot of ways to my experience counseling about vaccines, mm. which is that when I tell someone that they are more likely to be hurt by their own firearm than to defend themselves or their family with mm -hmm. it, which I believe is what the data shows, mm -hmm. they do not hear me. Right. And I cannot communicate that to them. And I hear what you're saying about how we need to find common ground with, with everyone, and especially with people who own guns. And I wonder in what way education is a part of that and how we should be implementing so that. I, there's great actually question. been some great studies. Um, Mike Anestis, who's at Rutgers, has done some really nice studies looking at actually who are the trusted messengers among the firearm community. And you're right that for most things, and this is where the anticipatory guidance gets tough, it's actually not us. And so actually, you know who's a trusted messenger is military, police officers, mm -hmm. and fellow firearm owners. And so the work has to be with those groups. Right, and that's which is, what, goes back to this point of when we start by saying, well, we're just gonna take away the firearms, we then cut off the ability to work with all those groups that actually can make a really, really big difference in terms of the patterns of firearm injury and death in this country. If you actually wanna talk about saving lives, it's about finding ways to work together with people who may have different belief systems from you, 
right? They, but there's no way forward in this country if we don't work with people who have different belief systems from us. So that would be, I think it's totally expectable, but we have to do that together. Do we have time for one more question? Or a few more questions? Thank you for working with one Emmy. More. One more question, okay. Uh, let's see, I'm trying not to just favor the folks in the front. Uh, <laughs> they're uh, in the back, someone's going like this. Uh, <laughs> you win so with the yeah. Thank you so much. You oh, you hold it, I'm so sorry, I'm very eager. Um, so first I just wanna say that I'm coming from Oklahoma, the state, the first state in the nation to enact an anti-red flag law, mm -hmm. very proudly. Yep. <laughs> on their part. Um, and I also wanna say we just had a mass shooting um, at our local hospital, St. Francis, and lost two physicians, a hospital staff member and a um, patient. And so I just wanna lift them up in this moment. And you know, I know that it's probably scary to be a physician right now because of um, gun violence as well. So I wanted to go back to what you were saying, Dr. Adams, about the recidivism decrease that you saw from 30% to 6%. I wanted to know more about that specific intervention. Mm -hmm. And then I also wanted to hear, I love that you brought in infrastructure. I know that like lights can decrease crime um, yes. in a neighborhood. So what other like violence interruption or interventions like transformative justice, resolving harm and conflict without police interaction, like mm -hmm. things that de-escalate and do harm reduction. What interventions have you seen work really well? And I wanna hear about the specific intervention you brought forward. Well, um, all of us know about the, these hospital-based um, uh, violence interruption programs, but, uh, but really it, it starts with just having a connection, having the conversation having the conversation with the individual. Um, peers are really helpful. If you can bring in someone else who's been there before, who they can relate to, that is incredibly helpful. Conflict resolution, teaching them skills. Um, and they did this in Chicago with the young people also, teaching them, uh, in many cases, you've got a young man who has no male role models in their life. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to deal with a conflict other than to pull out a gun and go shoot somebody. And so teaching them basic conflict resolution skills is important. Um, helping them get job training is incredibly important. Uh, I remember when I was in Chicago, I talked to a young man and he said, um, there's not a male in my family who, um, has, who's lived past 25 yeah. or with either alive or not in jail. So they, they don't see, if they don't have hope for, for, for a better future, I mean, I get angry. You know, and there's a lot of reasons I don't go out and shoot somebody, but one of them is I don't want to lose my really good job. <laughs> you know? Um, it, 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 and and I, I hate to be facetious there, but, but, but we have to give people hope and a vision for a better way forward. Uh, otherwise, they're choosing amongst a whole bunch of bad options. Yeah. And we're blaming them, but, but they don't have a good option to choose from. So. Right, and there are opportunities to work with the firearm community, you know, because they have control of the acts. They can deter people whom they recognize to be at risk. There are firearm retailers that are already turned down sales to people who, who demonstrate concerning behaviors. So if we can create education collaboratively that's voluntary, that everyone can use, then you can have interventions at gun ranges, at training facilities, at health systems, and so forth. But we can't get to these opportunities for, for violence intervention that's multiple layers without actually all of us coming together and, and being cooperative. Can you talk about greening? Yeah, so this, I love thank this. you. So this, this is one of my favorite. Um, there have been studies in Philadelphia, Detroit, and elsewhere that show when you take a vacant lot and put a garden in, or when you take an abandoned building and beautify it and turn it into a community center, it decreases the rate of firearm injury in the neighborhood just right around, like these directly surrounding neighborhood 
decreases the rate of firearm injury, uh, or the number of gunshots by around 5%, also decreases stress, depression, anxiety, other stress-related disorders. So a super simple intervention, which is putting in a garden, showing people in the community that we all care and we're in this together. And you now have a peaceful and calming place to go instead of walking by a vacant lot that's littered with broken bottles or kind of whatever. So that's one, yes, putting street lights in absolutely makes a difference. Improving our school systems, Big Brothers, Big Sisters yep. um, is one of the programs actually on the CDC's list as well, as well as on Blueprints, which is an incredibly well-proven violence intervention program. And so I think if you guys take nothing else out of this talk, it is, this is one of, I think, the most frustrating and divisive issues that we face mm -hmm. as a nation. And we can choose to let it continue to divide us, recognize that we all have very real personal reasons for hating that this problem exists. And, right, we can feel very kind of sad and hopeless and or we can choose to try to find paths forward that are maybe a little bit out of the box, but that address those root causes. The same way that I want to have a system to treat heart attacks really quickly when they come to my ED or to treat strokes, I also want to have a system that keeps people from having heart attacks in the first place. And so it's, a, it's about thinking about kind of what is that bigger picture of, and I love your question as a closing question, as a chance to think about what are those structural factors, what are the things in your own community that you could do or be part of to help create this change. Yes. I think back to the young woman who talked in the opening ideas about the social and emotional learning in schools as another great example of something that helps our kids who may have no role models how to deal. And, and so it's going to be a group. And when you asked for the magic wand, I struggled, Elizabeth, because I thought about this. And I'm like, there's no single magic wand. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality. We have a long ways to go. Oh, I didn't mean that the intervention would be okay. a magic wand. I meant that you had a magic wand I mean, to make one thing happen. Ah, right. Well, see, that's why so. I struggled. I missed okay. it. And I, I want to leave you with a parting thought yeah. that, that, that's a little bit different and provocative. Um, but that, that, uh, as Surgeon General, I put out a call to action awesome. on, on, um, on really doubling down on the national strategy for suicide prevention. Because there's a lot of these interventions that we've talked about are in the national strategy for suicide prevention. We just haven't implemented them. And why is that so important to me? Well, it's important to me, number one, because I'm a veteran, and we know veterans are at particularly high risk. But it's important to me because, and here's the provocative part, and I want to leave you with this. I would argue that every mass shooting, or most mass shootings, most mass shootings are suicides. I would argue that because if you're going to pick up a gun and go out and shoot a whole lot of people, you know that your life is essentially over after you commit this act. It is essentially a suicide attempt. Uh, in these inner city communities, these folks who are out there choosing to pick up a firearm, in many cases they know, I'm going to jail for the rest of my life or I'm going to die. These are suicide attempts, and the actual data shows that in mass shootings, um, one-third of the people who commit mass shootings reported uh, you can go back and find that they, they had suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts expressed beforehand. So the parting thought I want to leave you with is that suicide prevention is mass shooting prevention, is homicide prevention. If we do the things that will lower suicides in our community, including embracing and making sure 988, which is going to be active on July 16th, has the resources to yeah. actually take care of the calls that come in, then we will actually lower all firearm injury across this nation. Thank you for that.
<laughs> closing thought. Thank you. Thank you for that closing thought. Thanks. Thank you all. Thank you for you. your passion. Thank you. Thank you so much. And please, Thank you for caring. pick one thing. Pick one thing and just try to improve your community, as um, Megan said. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you all. for Happy to stay after for questions. Megan Ranney is academic dean at Brown University School of Public Health and the Warren Alpert Endowed Professor of Emergency Medicine at Brown's Alpert Medical School. Her research focuses on developing, testing, and disseminating digital health interventions to prevent violence and related behavioral health problems. Ranny is a fellow of the Aspen Institute's Health Innovators Fellowship Program and a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. Jerome Adams is Presidential Fellow and Executive Director of Health Equity Initiatives at Purdue University. He's also an anesthesiologist and a distinguished professor of practice in the departments of pharmacy practice and public health. Adams formerly served as a U.S. Surgeon General and a member of the President's Coronavirus Task Force. Prior to becoming Surgeon General, he ran the Indiana State Department of Health. Christopher Barsotti is co-founder and former CEO of the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine, a firm, and now program director of a firm at the Aspen Institute. He's also a practicing emergency medicine physician at Berkshire Medical Center, serving patients in Western New England and upstate New York. As a frontline physician, health educator, and certified 4-H youth firearms trainer, Barsati develops practical interdisciplinary curricula and programming for violence and firearm injury prevention and harm reduction. Elizabeth Cohen is senior medical correspondent at CNN's Health, Medical, and Wellness Unit. Cohen has been with CNN for 31 years covering health news and is the author of The Empowered Patient. If you were inspired by this conversation, we invite you to experience Aspen Ideas in person this June. Register today at aspenideas.org. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Health Team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.